I remember it as if it were last week, for it were. I was sitting in my customary armchair at number 23 Rattlesfield Street when Lord Morrissey Morrissey stormed into the room, newspaper clenched in hand. Cluddles, have you seen this? I'd only started rooming with Morrissey a week prior and I was still becoming accustomed to his errant moods. It appears to be a newspaper, Morrissey. I have told you, Pluddle, to not refer to me in such an informal manner. Sorry, Morrissey. Still, my point stands. Well, of course it's a newspaper. Have you seen page three? He thrust the broadsheet in front of my face, causing my whiskers to twitch due to the smell of the cheap ink that Fleet Street rags relied upon. An advertisement for silk denier stockings? Most interesting. No, you fool. The other advertisement. I scanned the lines and then began reading them aloud, trying to discern whatever it was Morrissey was concerned with. In the matter of Archibald versus Merricat, the judgment of the court is that both sides are liable. As such, on Wednesday the 13th there will be an estate sale of the remains of Mr. Hitching's Alderthrop. Proceeds will go to the home for forlorn orphans. No hawkers or Campbells. What a strange advertisement, Morrissey. Strange? Strange? It's downright sinister, Pluddles. Morrissey's bookcases contained within them volumes which range from the history of invertebrates to the soothing power of whale song and the use of questioning suspects. He began to pull volumes at what seemed like random, throwing them onto my lap. That advertisement is confirmation of my worst fears, Pluddles. I'm afraid your menial work at the post office will have to wait. We need to check our rogers and verify a few geographical details. But if I am correct, this is the first proof positive of the recudence of a dastardly conspiracy, one I thought had been put to bed at the end of the Stickle affair. Although I'd only been in Morrissey's company a short time, I knew enough of his history, even the bits that had not made the papers, to realise that anything to do with the former Exchequer of the Exchange and Morrissey's late companion could be nothing other than a rum doing. This would be a two pots of tea concern, so I rang the bell and settled down to work. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. In Auckland, New Zealand, I am Josh Addison, and in Hamilton, New Zealand, they are Dr. M. Denton. Are you, are you calling me from the, the vaulted halls of academia there? No, I'm calling you from the vaulted halls of my flat. Oh. I actually was planning to do the recording in the lounge, but actually my flatmate is still here. I thought he was returning back to Auckland this afternoon. So I've decided to relocate or decamp, as they say in the trade, to my bedroom. So I'm recording here in the parlor where I do my sleeping stuff. Mm. That, that, that would be lying unconscious drooling a little bit which is when you think about it a really weird thing that every one of us does, does every yeah. day we just for some reason decide yeah the next eight hours i'm just not going to be anywhere which is why billy eilish said when we sleep where do we go because that's a good question i mean we know exactly where we go we stay in one place yes. and then you go into rem sleep there's a whole bunch mm. of weird stuff going on there there are drugs in your system that basically make you immobile because otherwise you'd probably kill yourself by spasming during your dreams i mean really mm. it's a wild trip when you actually start looking at what's going on in the brain when we are dreaming mm. and that's why i drink whiskey because those thoughts make me go hmm Life is very complex. Only whiskey will make it better. Whiskey, it's the thought killer. But enough advertising for whiskey for which we are not being paid. <laughs> You're not being paid for advertising whiskey. Son of a bitch.
So we, we have for you this week another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. So we began, if I recall, back in the mists of four weeks ago or something, six weeks. I don't know. Time no longer has meaning. We've done two. We've done two previous far, ones, which means that basically five weeks ago we something started like this that. journey. This journey into a brave new hmm. world, Joshua. Uh, so we began with uh, Popper Visited by Charles Pigden. Uh, we moved on to Of Conspiracy Theories by Brian L. Keeley. And this week we look at Living with the Conspiracy by Lee Basham, which on my reading of it is kind of a reaction to Brian L. Keeley's one. So we've had our two, our two seminal works, and now we're sort of getting into your, into your commentary on the stuff, on, the, on, the, on the, the, the thesis and antithesis and all that philosophy business that I totally remember. You're not going to do some kind of seminal gag? I'm, or what happens after the seminal work has been produced? I never gag on seminal matters. I mean, I see, I was going to go with, you know, going to be sponging up the issues left behind by the two seminal papers. No. But, you know, your gagging gag, whilst very crude and not particularly gentlemanly, was indeed a well worth it moment in our podcast. It will probably go down as the third most important moment the podcast has ever had. Probably. So I think we should get straight into a, a look at philosophy conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre in a, in a grave and serious tone with none of our usual spunk. Right, so, Living with the Conspiracy by Lee Basham, the Philosophical Forum, volume 32, number 3, fall 2001. So I'm guessing... Still pre-9-11. Yeah, fall, fall would probably, in fact, uh, I, it may, unlike Fall in America is sort of August, September, isn't it? But I'm assuming he would have written it in, in advance of that. So yes, again, missed out by, by that much uh, the most conspiracy gener theory generating event of recent time, but that's okay. And, and once again, I do have to ask, mm. what with the lack of foresort? For, foresort? Foresort? Well, actually, what is with the lack of foresort and foresight, mm. guys? I mean, really, you should have been able to predict this. Actually, no one could. That's kind of what made it such a no. amazing mm. event in history and why there are so many conspiracy theories around it. So, yes, this is another example of a pre-9-11 conspiracy theory paper in philosophy. And the abstract goes something like this. What if you're told that select Freemasons and a consortium of satellite groups are the secret masters of the planet? What if you're shown that if this is true, the history of Western civilization, down to minute details, becomes an illuminated path, an incredibly clear, cogent chronology? All it takes is a cognitive cliff dive into the dark, spooky waters of conspiracy theory. But few of us will go near that cliff. Even fewer will step to the edge and peer down at the abyss. Only very few step into the air and take the plunge. This is surprising. Why is contemporary conspiracy theory with its seductive promise of hidden knowledge and genuine understanding the notorious exception in human belief rather than the norm? The temptation is obvious. Why the commonplace refusal, which is so complete as to suggest that many of us think the cliff dive isn't even a rational option? As reason-obsessed philosophers, we probably assume the answer lies in rational epistemology. We likely believe it's an easy task to show most conspiracy theories are utterly unwarranted. But is it? Which is interesting right off the bat, because 
the 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 general tone i think of um the of charles pigden and brian l keely's papers before it was sort of why 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 do people believe in these conspiracy theories these wacky things um and then go on to say why exactly what's wrong with them whereas this kind of starts on the other way why don't more people believe in conspiracy theories which i i guess sets the tone for the rest of the paper really which um goes into mentions of conspiracy theories in the let's see third paragraph straight into it but but it looks at it no, in kind of a different no beating around yep. the bush when it comes to Lee's work. No, so 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 established itself um, fairly early on as a commentary on the paper of conspiracy theories that we looked at last time, and so because of conspiracy theories, um, starts with a good long look at the Oklahoma City bombing, which is sort of the the test case in that one. The the, the exemplar. Um, this paper also does the same and basically gives a recap. Really, we probably don't need to go into it, given that we've talked about it when we talked about of conspiracy theories, and we talked about it a few weeks before that when we talked about the actual Oklahoma City bombing. So it goes through all of that business and, and basically sets out the, 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 the ground that we're familiar with already, um, in particular the, 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 the fact that there are these um, uh, errant or, what was it? Yes, errant, errant facts about it, things which either... Errant data. Yeah, things which either... Uh, are not accounted for by the official narrative or which potentially contradict the official narrative. Um, and he sort of points out these things exist um, and what do we do about them? But um, he he carries on. Am I rushing through this too fast? I sort of, uh, the, the, the beginning of it seemed to be largely sort of a restatement of, um, of conspiracy theories and picking out the bits he's interested in before he gets into... Um, into his particular opinion on it. Is there anything that needs to be said in particular about those early sections? Well, you, I mean, you haven't asked the question you asked with respect to the first two papers, which is say a little bit about the author. Oh, of course. I, how, how remiss of me. Yes, okay, before we continue, now we've, we've heard the voice of Lee Basham. We've indeed seen the face of Lee Basham. If you watch the, uh, watch the YouTube version of these ones and Ian's last interview with him. Uh, but yes, tell us a little bit about Lee. So Lee is a philosopher at South Texas College in Texas, which is part of the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley. I think the valley is part of it. It's definitely Rio Grande, which is a, a large research institution down in South Texas. I have shared a bedroom with Lee on many an occasion. No hanky-panky was engaged in, but we have spent time at conferences together and shared digs. So I've been in Miami with him. I've been in Turku with him. I've been in Bamberg with him. I mean, frankly, I've been all around the world with this this particular wacky guy, doing my Steve Martin re reference there. And he's a quality philosopher writing on conspiracy theory. As this paper kind of points out, he's the third modern philosopher to deal with the topic of conspiracy theory in a kind of serious appraisal of what is wrong or what is right with conspiracy theory, both generally and with respect to particular cases. And probably along with me is the most published philosopher on conspiracy theory. Lee and I have both written an awful lot of papers. Indeed, one of the papers we'll be looking at next is another paper by the aforementioned Lee Basham. It's either going to be the next paper or the paper after next. So we'll be encountering his work an awful lot in the series of conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre papers. Mm. 
Right, so yes, I was rushing things too fast. I'd forgotten the most important bit of introduction at the very beginning. <clears throat> that aside, so he does he, he does establish this paper as a as a as a reaction to slash commentary on Brian L. Keeley's paper that came before it. Um he talks about how in of conspiracy theories, Brian Keeley um talks about why conspiracy theories are popular and yet to to, to quote Brian and Al Keeley, epistemically unwarranted. Yes, and indeed Lee takes it that Brian's article was probably the most articulate and compelling diagnosis of why these theories are popular but also problematic. Indeed, he actually goes on to then describe Keeley's project as one of explicating why we should reject most conspiratorial explanations of morally, culturally, and politically momentous events and instead place our confidence in the official story. Now, what's interesting about this, and I am also guilty of this particular error, although actually I don't think Lee thinks this is an error or not, so this is a difference of opinion between Lee and myself, I think Lee, and by extension myself and my own work, kind of gets Brian wrong here. Because it is true that in the last section of, of Conspiracy Theories, Brian does seem to talk quite generally about the popularity of conspiracy theories, and also why people who believe in them believe in a kind of ordered world, which is not one that we should actually respect given our understanding of politics and the like. But I actually think that Brian's analysis in the first two-thirds of the paper squares his analysis quite centrally on mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. And charitably, we have to assume that when he's talking about the popularity of such theories, he's talking about the popularity of mature conspiracy theories, which are unwarranted, rather than conspiracy theories generally. So I think that Lee gets Brian wrong here, and I also think I got Brian wrong here when I wrote a similar analysis in my PhD thesis and also my book, The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. Available now from Palgrave Macmillan, probably, or is that the other one? No, 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 Palgrave okay. Macmillan. I think, so. I think <laughs> available now from Palgrave Macmillan. It's very expensive. Mm. Well, it's another true statement. Yes, so he, he, he continues to summarise... Um, what we talked about last time in terms of um, explanatory completeness, um, the, 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 the fact that conspiracy theories uh, promote themselves above the official narrative in, in many ways because they are more explanatory of the events. They account for more of the data and in the in of conspiracy theories the reply to that was yeah that, that that's actually suspicious because in any set of data some of it's just going to be wrong and so if something manages to account for all of it it's probably not actually that, that that's evidence against it yeah there's a kind of tension between an explanation being fulsome and an explanation being overly complete so you want your explanations to explain a lot and account for a lot of data the worry is if the explanation accounts for all of the data, then you're looking at an explanation that might be post facto. It's been constructed to take all the data into account. Because normally, particularly when we're dealing with explanations in the social sciences and the humanities, where we're dealing with actions by human beings, explanations should be fuzzy. So, I mean, it is true that if you've got an explanation in the sciences which is more explanatory complete than another one, 
then that is grounds to have a preference for that particular explanation. Although it still could be a post-factor one where people have designed designed an explanation to cover all points. But when you're dealing with an explanation of human activity, if it suddenly explains things like the choice of the colour of the socks the president wore on the day he died, then that explanation is probably something which you should be looking at slightly askance by going, yeah, but why is it explaining that? That doesn't seem relevant. So completeness is important, but you also want to be able to make some claim about the completeness being relevant to the thing you're trying to explain. Mm. And then he goes on and mentions the, the, the um, business around unfalsifiability. And he uh, agrees that um, Brian O'Keeley is right to say unfalsifiability isn't actually a problem in conspiracy theories. Maybe in, in science, um, it's a problem if your theory is unfalsifiable. But again, when we're in sort of in, in the social sphere, when we're talking about things involving those pesky human beings, um, and especially when we're investigating things where part of the, the very nature of it is that people are going to be actively concealing things from you, unfalsifiability isn't necessarily a problem. I think, I can't, was it in this paper or the, or, or of conspiracy theories, they point that you know, in science, the objects of your study are not actively concealing themselves from you. I guess unless you're... Yes, that, yeah, that's a point that's made by Keeley mm. in Of Conspiracy Theories. I mean, Lee does push this point ra rather well. One of the things which is interesting about studying humans is that we engage in tactical deception. So we don't just lie from time to time. We often lie to achieve particular ends. So, and we And we know that. We know that from dealing with family members. We know about that with dealing with colleagues at work. And if we're unlucky, we know about that when dealing with friends. Every so often, people will go, I need to achieve some particular end, which is for you to do something, or for you to not find out something about what I've done. So I am going to deceive you, and you're going to do it tactically. You're going to do it for a particular rationale, and you're going to do it in a rather interesting way. And once we admit that actually tactical deception is a natural part of human activity, now there's a good question as to how common this is, but if it's a part of human activity, then it doesn't seem particularly weird to think that actually people are lying to us quite a lot of the time. And in some cases, groups of people will be lying to us quite a bit of the time. And that sounds an awful lot like Conspiracy. It sure does. Now, after after sort of the summary of of, of conspiracy theories and uh, which, which is basically sort of a restatement in most cases, uh, wholehearted agreement with um, the, the 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 message of that paper, um, the starts to like, st starts starts to disagree. Basically, um, the section called the critical mistake of unwarranted conspiracy theories. Um, he talks about how, if you recall, um, in, in Of Conspiracy Theories, Brian says that the, the, the real problem uh, with this sort of unwarranted conspiracy theory is that you end up uh, becoming too sceptical. The, the, more, the more the conspiracy theory grows, the more you're required to doubt in order to continue holding to it. Um, 
you're, you're you eventually become skeptical of pretty much anything. I mean, you know, and we see this in um, your, your flat earth conspiracy theories, you know, where people will actually doubt the laws of physics themselves and what have you. And so I'd, the, 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 this, this is possibly an exaggeration and an overstatement. My, my impression of the paper is that it seemed to be sort of painting of conspiracies as a, as a slightly sort of Pollyanna-ish, rosy view of society that says, no, no, you should, you should just trust, trust in the world um, and not be skeptical about everything. And then the paper goes on to show, well, actually, there's lots and lots about the world that we shouldn't trust and it's full of deceit and deception and so on. Um, I'm not sure if I'm entirely doing justice to it there, but that was that was that was the impression I got. Um, and certainly his his restatement where of conspiracy theory talks about the problem is that you end up being too skeptical. This paper tends to states it as he's saying you should believe in the public trust. Am I getting that right? Yes. So Lee takes it that Brian's approach is the best articulation of what he calls the pub- public trust approach towards conspiracy theory, which is the reason to be sceptical of conspiracy theories is that we should trust in authority. So he kind of states, an appeal to trust in the public's ability to discover the truth, that is, an appeal to public trust, the trust we have in public mechanisms of information to uncover the deceit and lies that a conspiracy needs to exist. It takes it that this is the argument for public trust. And Lee is very much of the opinion that actually this is a naive Mm. appeal to authority, given how much we know about the existence of conspiracies historically, and what we also know about human nature. Such an appeal to the public trust is going to be a bad one. It's going to lead us down the wrong path. And so he takes it that Keeley is kind of committed to advocating public trust. Now, I I don't agree. Once again, I think that Lee and I have got Brian wrong on this particular respect. I think that Brian's interest is in mature, unwarranted conspiracy theories. Certainly the work that I co-authored with Brian a few years ago in the Rutledge Handbook of, Epist- of Applied Epistemology, uh, Brian at least doesn't have this view anymore. But yes, Lee does push a particular issue. Now, I should point out, it's actually kind of irrelevant as to whether we've got Brian right or wrong here. We should be analysing the kind of argument that Lee puts forward for why the public trust approach is bad, regardless of whether it refers to Brian's work, because it certainly is the case, even if we disregard Keeley's work, that there are people in the wider literature, I'm thinking particularly in social psychology, who do seem to put forward the, if a scientist says it, you must believe it, or even if a political authority says it, you ought to believe it as well. And so there are people going, well, look, the problem with conspiracy theories is they they counter what authorities tell us. If authorities tell us things, we should believe them, because otherwise we're going to be stuck in a, in a mire of skepticism everywhere. And that does seem like an epistemically poor choice to make if you want to reason through the kind of world that we actually live in. Mm. Um, Yeah, and so in this paper, um, Lee talks about stuff that we've talked about 
at length many times on this podcast, the fact that conspiracies do occur everywhere. The business world is full of them. The political world is full of them. Um, Low-grade versions of them happen in everyday life between private individuals all the time. So to say that um, you shouldn't believe in conspiracy theories because you can trust in the public to, um, to, 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 to arrive at the truth kind of ignores uh, a large amount of public life. Yeah, indeed. He states this. The real issue haunting us is what a relatively conspiracy-free society that we would be well justified in believing is relatively conspiracy-free would look like. One thing is clear. It would not look like ours, whatever the truth about our society is. So Lee's point is... If we actually want to make judgments about the prior probability of conspiracy, we have to have some kind of judgment about how conspired our society is here and now. And no matter what we believe about our societies here and now, we cannot be sure that conspiracies are not occurring around us as we speak. We have no confidence in the belief that people don't conspire in the here and now. And our judgments have to take that kind of thing into account when we start judging the warrant of particular conspiracy theories that we encounter on a day-to-day basis. Mm. So there's there's a lot to this. Um, I'm sort of I'm thinking about what I want to say, and I'm finding myself boiling it down to a few short sentences. When in fact, there's a lot of good reasoned pages and pages of stuff behind it. But basically. That's that's where we arrive at. If you're trying to say that conspiracy, if the, if you're trying to say that the problem with conspiracy theories is that they require us to give up trust, uh, to to give up this public trust, when in fact everything we know about society says that we probably shouldn't actually trust what we hear. So then what? Um, it's still like uh, up until this. Uh, as I was reading through it up until this point. It kind of seemed to be very much um, in defense of conspiracy theories, I guess. The the, the previous of conspiracy theories and um, Popper Revisited seemed to very much start from the position, okay, well, we know we've got these conspiracy theories that are rubbish. They're, they're, they're just silly, they're nonsense, but why? why? Why do people believe them when they are nonsense, And but why are they actually nonsense? Whereas this seems to come up from the other angle, that conspiracy theories, it's entirely reasonable to believe in them. Um, and then he ends up with what, to my reading, is the sort of particularist view that we've talked about a lot before. Um, when he talks about why, so what, what is it that would cause us to be sceptical of a conspiracy theory? Um, he starts talking about uh, we ought to be sceptical of conspiracy theories when they suffer various internal faults. These include problems with self-consistency, explanatory gaps, appeals to unlikely or obviously weak motives and other unrealistic psychological states, poor technological claims, and the theory's own incongruencies with observed facts at grants, including failed predictions. And certainly we can think about lots of conspiracies there. I mean, you know, good old QAnon has a, a good record in failed predictions. Um, your 9-11 ones that rely on the existence of cloaking technology or or sort of Star Wars laser beams. Or, or anything. hologrammatic planes. Hologrammatic planes, yep. So we can actually... Actually, sorry, did I say hologrammatic planes as opposed to hologrammatic? Yeah. 
or hologram. I suppose it would be hologrammatic. It just hologrammatic sounds as if it's some kind of weird technological spell checking Mm. thing. Oh yes, I ran the hologrammatic checker over the article and I discovered three misplaced semicolons. So yes, as as sort of as I read over this bit, it then sounds like okay, hang on, this this is starting to sound familiar. We're basically the the if I'm reading it correctly, and do correct me if I'm wrong. The point of it turns out to be, well, no, there's nothing about conspiracy theories in general that means they're unreasonable. You have to, but you can show a particular conspiracy theory to be unreasonable by evaluating it on its merits, which sounds awfully familiar. Yes, and indeed, when we get to the Buting and Taylor paper on particularism versus generalism, we'll kind of see suddenly two authors who have never reappeared in the literature at all, actually giving a name to something which was kind of being argued quite explicitly by Lee, but also arguably being argued by Pigden and Keeley as well, which is we need to be dealing with conspiracy theories on the particulars of their evidence, rather than dismissing them merely because of these general claims about the class of these things called conspiracy theories. So yeah, so Lee is putting forward a very explicit particular agenda. He just isn't using that particular term because that term has yet to be co-opted from the ethical literature by two other authors whose work we will see in, in short recalls. Mm. And he does make a good point about um, the, the whole uh, Oklahoma City bombing example, which is that, uh, well, actually, let's quote the paper. It's revealing that Keeley never explicitly tells us at what point the BATF Mara bombing conspiracy theory becomes unwarranted by his lights. At what point are public institutions of information brought into too great suspicion by it? We never told how to draw the line. We can't say either. But we know why. The ultimate danger of these nature of these institutions is largely beyond our ken. So yes, that is a it is an interesting point. If you're saying oh, the, the, the problem is them, the problem with these theories is that you end up becoming too sceptical. Well, what, what exactly is too sceptical? And I think this is a particular problem with Keeley's paper with respect to the Oklahoma City bombing, because there isn't actually that much time between the publication of the paper and the event in question. Surely if you're worried about maturity, you're actually talking about quite a long period of time, and that's what Lee points out. It's a very vague metric what makes a conspiracy theory mature with respect to its unwarranted claims. I mean, it'd be much more interesting to make these claims about, say, 9-11 now, given that 9-11 was, and I, I hate to remind you, back in 2001. It's 19 years ago, folks. Almost. 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 And you might well go, well, let's just say that the proof positive that 9-11 was a inside job, either Mihop or Lehop, doesn't appear to be exactly the case at this particular point in time, at which point you might go, there does seem to be a lengthy period of time of no new evidence showing the conspiracy to be true. So you then might go, that would be the perfect thing to put your analysis of the mature unwarranted conspiracy theory upon, an example which is almost 19 years of age. And admittedly, it does seem the numbers indicate that 
it's kind of stable as to whether people believe Nine Levels inside job or not. But it's a much better example now than the Oklahoma City bombing was at the time Brian wrote his paper. Mm. And so then my, my, my eyes lit up as I read the next section, because when it starts to talk about so what should we do about it, we get uh, a, a section entitled Agnosticism about the conspiracy. Now, when I was a young man full of piss and vinegar doing my Master of Arts at the University of Auckland, um, uh, I did a dissertation in philosophy on epistemological fallibilism and used agnosticism as an example of it. So I, I was like, oh, this is almost maybe something th- that I might know about. Um, but basically, Lee sort of seems to be suggesting that we be agnostic about conspiracy theories, which again basically ties in with the particularist view. When you see a particular conspiracy theory, um, until you have warrant one way or another, uh, possibly best to... Um, to, to reserve judgment. So, so Josh, ex- explain to our illustrious audience what agnosticism is, given that you've written on what agnosticism actually is, as opposed to possibly what some people take it to be from the commonplace understanding. Well, I mean, as, as also a linguistic student, I probably have to preface it by saying that, 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 that um, usage determines meaning, so whatever the common conception of it is, is probably closer to what the word means these days. But... Um, agnosticism is a term that was invented by Thomas Henry Huxley, who was uh, Charles Darwin's right-hand man, um, and indeed apparently uh, he was sort of the, the most vocal proponent of Darwin's views. Darwin, from what I gather, was a bit more shy and retiring, but Huxley had this thunderous voice and would give these rousing um, dissertations promoting these views. But he also wrote about uh, the term agnosticism in and. Although he doesn't say as much, when he talks about it, it's very clear that he's talking about uh, a particular um, a particular kind of fallib- fallibilistic belief, the idea that we humans are flawed, we are fallible, um, which means that anything we hold on, any, any belief we hold on to, we have to at least acknowledge the possibility that we might be wrong about it. Um, so it's not it's not quite scepticism. It doesn't say knowledge is impossible. It doesn't say we can't ever arrive at knowledge. But it does kind of say that even if we do arrive at knowledge, we can never be quite certain that you know it, it may turn out the thing we believe is a hundred percent true. But we can never be a hundred percent sure that the thing is a hundred percent true. And then he he in particular applies this to a religious sphere, and and essentially says, yeah, humans are flawed, so. We can't say for cert- with certain um, either way. Th- these days, agnostic just kind of means, uh, I'm not really sure. Um, and it often uh, you sort of see agnostic often in, 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 a, in, in more religious communities when a person says they're agnostic, what they really mean is they're an atheist, but they just um, don't, don't want to admit it to the rest of their community. But um, essentially, yeah, it's just acknowledge that we don't and indeed can't know everything because we're just humans with our puny little three-dimensional brains. And so with that, and and I guess the other thing to point out is that this is not a, this is a rule of thumb he, um, in, in papers on the subject. It's sort of referred to as being similar to Occam's razor, so not an absolute rule, but just a, a maxim that we should guide ourselves by. Why am I talking about this again? Just because I can? Because we're relating it back to the agnosticism towards conspiracy theory. Right, well, there we go. So because we know that, um, because we know what we don't know, we know that when we see something... You're sounding a little bit like Donald Rumsfeld A little there. bit. Yeah, I am coming over a bit Rumsfeld, I'm afraid. Uh, but because, because we, we acknowledge our own fallibility, when we see uh, a conspiracy theory, 
we have to say, well, I don't have enough at the moment to know whether or not this is this is true. So I just have to accept that fact. And then as time goes by, you might it might become more and more warranted or more and more unwarranted. But the the good agnostic would acknowledge it, no matter how certain it seems. There's always that niggling little possibility that maybe it will turn out one way or the other. And that's agnosticism. Hooray! Hooray for agnosticism, mm. and hooray for agnosticism towards conspiracy theories. Hooray for Pocoyo. Have you watched Pocoyo? No, I have not. What What is Pocoyo? Uh, it's, it's, it's a, I think, originally Spanish animated kids show with a little kid called Pocoyo. The English version is narrated by Stephen Fry, and it, every episode ends with, hooray for whatever it is they've been talking about. Hooray for Pocoyo, so I can't hear the words. And my children obviously watch this show a lot and I can no longer hear hooray for something without immediately wanting to reply hooray for Pocoyo. Sometimes I think the way you talk about your children, you treat them like Pavlov's dog. I treat them, they're a good excuse to ex- expose myself to other kinds of um, pop culture. <laughs> don't, don't, don't say expose yourself to other children, because no. that will just be wrong. Did you know, right now, actually not right now, because they've gone to bed, but before I began recording this podcast, um, they were watching a new show on Netflix. Were you ever into your WWE you're not really. No, so you don't know, no. don't know the big show? No. A uh, very large wrestler is now the, the, the lovable dad in a family sitcom called The Big Show, which I did really? not know until today. Well, I feel as if I've learnt absolutely nothing from that little tidbit, given I didn't know anything about it in the first place, and now I'm going, you've given me a reference to hang something on, and I don't know what that reference is. Nice. Well done. Well done. Hmm. So anyway, we are... As is our want, getting distracted by um, uh, pop, pop culture diversions, which probably means we're near the end of the episode, and indeed we're near the end of the paper. Um, so, so the paper rounds out the paper, of course, being called um, "Living with the Conspiracy Theory." Oh, sorry, "Living with the Conspiracy." Um, the final section of it is how to live with the conspiracy. How should we live with the conspiracy? Well, Lee argues thusly. A more solid ground for the rejection of conspiracy theories is simply pragmatic. There is nothing you can do. Hmm. So essentially it's just to, it almost seems just to sort of to, to shrug and accept it, really. Conspiracy theories exist. Get used to it. And that doesn't preclude, of course, investigating and finding out whether it's more or less warranted. But um, that's pretty much all you can say on first blush. Which, to begin with, the first when when I first read through this paper, I saw it, it reminded me a little bit actually of conspiracy theories that spend most of their time bagging the official version and then don't have much to say at the end about to promote their own view of things. It seemed to be a lot of criticizing of conspiracy theories, but then not a lot at the end. But then as I read through it again, I thought, actually, no, it's, it's, it is, it's, it is really putting forward that particularist idea. And it's not, it, 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 it's not just a shrug at the end. It's a, it's a acknowledgement of our fallible nature and putting forward a good way, a good way forwards um, of analyzing conspiracy theories. And I think we need to realize in the historical context this paper was published, this was essentially, from the looks of it, not now, but the time then, it did look like trying to push a boulder up the mountain. This was basically going, look, most of you think conspiracy theories are bad. I'm actually going to argue that they're, they're not just not bad, in some cases they actually might be good, and so it's written in a way which is both meant to appeal to people, 
who have read the earlier papers and agree with some of the sentiment, was actually being a bit subversive by putting forward something completely new in the literature. Mm. And so, I mean, yeah, in retrospect, it it does seem a bit weird now, but at the time, it was a groundbreaking piece of work. Mm. Context turns out to be king. It sure does, yes. So... Um, another very interesting paper there, I think, and it is, it's, it's becoming interesting to see how the field of conspiracy theory theorizing has, has started to evolve, but there's plenty more where that came from, I gather. Oh, yes. I mean, when I wrote my PhD back in 2012, there really weren't that many papers at all, but my... My, there's been an explosion. I've been part of that explosion. I've been, I've been exploding like everyone else in this literature. So there'll be a lot to see, and we do have to confront the issue of what happens when you start finding my papers. I've got a kind of plan, but we'll have to work see whether it works mm. out. So we've got a little ways to go uh, till then. We have indeed. But before then, we've got some bonus mm. content for our patrons and my what a grab bag of conspiracy nuggets we've got this week we've got some local news about a national mp who's really quite concerned about road signage we have some international news where it turns out that twitter is finally doing fact checks against the president of the united states of america and that hasn't worked out particularly well. We discover that the US is actually funding COVID-9 disinformation of overseas. We'll learn a little bit about a USB stick that apparently prevents COVID-19. We'll discover that hydro hydroxychloroquine actually might be back on the menu as a viable treatment for COVID-19. There's an interesting little thing we have to kind of say about those riots mm -hmm. going on in the US, which I guess we can't really ignore, but at the same time, it almost seems too soon. And a little bit about how our local police minister actually turned out to be a bit of a dick. Yes, in relation to the aforementioned riots. But... That's all coming up in the in the bonus episode for our patrons. If you'd like to become one of our patrons and are not currently, you can go to Patreon and search for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. And I think that that is all we have to say to you in this regular episode of the Podcaster's Cons uh, Guide to the Conspiracy today. But next week, who, who knows what excitements we'll have. Well, we probably have a good idea, but you will find out when you get there, and we'll all get there very soon. Mm, but until then... Goodbye. Murder, she wrote. You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. M.R. Extented, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism. Remember, 
It's just a step to the left.